All right, good morning, everybody. Let's get started. Today, we are continuing our um, series on the survey of the Old Testament. So to recap or to reintroduce, we're we're taking a bird's-eye view. Today, we'll take a bird's-eye view of Chronicles, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So only four books, not six books today. Um, I'm using slides that you'll be up here, but I also have slides uh, provided in the handouts. Um, Someone uh, suggested that, so I figured I'd go ahead and try that. You can take notes on that if you like. Uh, Let me know if you like it or not, because we can continue doing that or not. All right, so to review the timeline um, of, of everything, we are currently right now, so this is the timeline of the Old Testament. We're right here, okay? So we're at the, right after the Babylonian exile, into where they return, okay? Uh, Chronicles is put here, but that's wrong. It should be over here. It wasn't written until here, okay? So that's where we are on the timeline, okay? All right, so Israel was... Let me do an intro real quick. So in the year 930 BC, the Israel nation was split into two nations. Over the next 200 years, the two separate kingdoms continued side by side. In the north, you had uh, sometimes called Ephraim. They were totally apostate kingdom. In the south, you had Judah, had the Davidic line and such. So you had some good kings some really bad kings and some kings that were both. Before the north was destroyed, it went through a period of great prosperity under the king Jeroboam II. And then in the year 722 BC, Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom and dispersed them throughout Assyria because of the apostasy of the people. And then in 586 BC, 120 years later, the southern kingdom was destroyed and taken into Babylonian captivity, right? Uh, And that was because of their apostasy as well as their idolatry. And then in 536 BC, 50,000 Jews left Babylon and went back to the Promised Land. And so... um, 50, 50 years later? Yes, uh, so 50 years later, roughly 50 years later, 50,000 of them went back. The book of Chronicles, we're, where we're starting, and now we're back, now we're into where Chronicles is. book of Chronicles was written at 430 B.C., so 100 years after the return of um, the first group of exiles back to uh, Jerusalem. Right. So just giving you a time frame where we're at on history. Some of this stuff can get can get confusing. It was written, um, so the book, 430 B.C., it was written, uh, we know it was written at this time because the genealogy of the book takes us to that time frame, right? So it it couldn't have been written before because the people weren't there, okay? Um, It was written after a time of great spiritual revival. So they go back, everybody's excited, it's fresh, it's new, they have spiritual revival. And then um, that follows with 
terrible deterioration, like normal with them, right? So they had a number of prominent sins in, the, in, the time, in that time. Uh, the main ones, there's a lot of them, but the main ones, they were neglecting God's word. Um, they were materialism. They were intermarrying with unbelievers. It was a time... Um, also, the priests were leading worship without any heart. It was very ritualistic, not a lot of heart in their worship and their leadership. <clears throat> so Chronicles was written during a time, the time of uh, Nehemiah's second reformation, and I'll explain that, uh, when uh, he and Malachi worked together for spiritual reformation. And we'll talk about that in the book of Nehemiah. The book was probably written and compiled by Ezra. Okay? Um, and we know that because when you compare the last verses of Chronicles with the first verses of Ezra, they're virtually the same. <clears throat> and Ezra was a scribe. We'll talk about that too. Um, but history indicates that that's who, who wrote it. Chronicles is also one of those books that was a single book that was divided into two. And the reason, again, for that was because the Hebrew text, when written, is smaller than the Greek text. And so when they took the writings from, uh, and they translated from Hebrew to Greek, they couldn't fit it all in one, one scroll. So they had to do two scrolls. And so that's where we get one and two Kings, one and two Samuel, and one and two Chronicles. But really, it's one book. Chronicles was written during a time of widespread religion with no heart, no substance, uh, during a time of spiritual decline. Chronicles is a history book that scans all of history, and it begins with the very beginning, from Adam all the way to the decree of Cyrus, uh, when, when he says they can leave exile. So it spans... 3,500 years at least, right? So a ton of time is in, is in Chronicles. <clears throat> Why was a history book written to a people who are in spiritual decline? Why write a history book? Ezra, the author, selects and focuses on certain um, themes that are, he, he focuses on certain themes here, and he discounts and doesn't even talk about certain subjects. And so he's very selective in what he includes in his version of history. And why does he do that? Because he has a lesson to teach. He's faced with a people who are back from exile and are beginning to go the way of Israel and Judah prior. Right? And so he's afraid that post-exile Judah is going to follow in their footsteps. And so he's writing a book saying, remember, remember what the Lord did, and let's not do this again. All right? So Ezra explains that all of Israel's history, all of its glory comes from its covenant relationship with God. That's what he's focusing on. We are God's chosen. We have a covenant relationship with God. When the nation has honored the covenant, they have prospered. When they have disregarded the covenant, they've had nothing but trouble. When the nation has been obedient to God, they've been blessed. When the nation has been disobedient to God, 
they've been destroyed been punished. So in this history book, Ezra selects times and events that will underline this message. That's what he's focusing on. He also makes it plain that if you are going to be faithful to God, you must come to him by the means of grace. So it's not just a workspace. He's making it, making it very clear that you need to come to him by the means of grace. You can't walk with God without the temple, without the priesthood, without the word of God, without the primacy of prayer. You must be an enemy of idolatry. You must abandon conformity with the surrounding nations. So all of these are themes that are prominent in the book of Chronicles. So the book of Chronicles, Ezra starts the book off with genealogies. He traces the sacred line from the, uh, from the Messiah to come, from the very beginning to the Messiah to come on the kings. The genealogies in this book are not exhaustive, but they're exhausting, uh, but they're not exhaustive. Okay? Um, they're not comprehensive. That's not the point. The point is to trace the messianic line. Sometimes people will get caught up with that because they look at kings and there's some variances there. That's because he's focusing on this one thing. Okay? He gives some time to the Levites because they're important to the temple administration. He gives time <clears throat> to Benjamin, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah because almost all of his readers were from Benjamin and Judah right? Because the southern kingdom was preserved. And because that's where the Davidic line came from. So he gets in this book as quick as he can, he gets to the line of David, and he highlights David's life. Although Solomon built the temple, God gave the plans to David. So David is the central character in the book. The central subject is the temple. So when, when discussing Solomon's life, he focuses on the temple. He doesn't focus on Solomon's life. He focuses on the temple. Second Chronicles 28, 9 through, or 28, 9 through 10 shows us a message that is, that is constant throughout the book. This is a great verse to memorize too, by the way. One of the last things David says to Solomon before he dies. <clears throat> and you, my son Solomon... Acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart, understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and do the same. <clears throat> you see that message throughout the book. That was one verse? 28.9. First Chronicles 28.9 and 10. <clears throat> and it should be on the page of slide deck 9. So, he then writes about the life of, of the split nation. Writes about the split nation. He does, he says nothing about the northern kingdom in this book. He's focused primarily on the Davidic line. 
He traces out how the Lord preserved David's life. That's, that's the key message. He traces that out. He explains why even Judah had to go into exile and ends, with, ends the book with a pronouncement um, from Cyrus ending the exile. So he teaches a spiritual lesson throughout this entire book. <clears throat> Obey God and be blessed. Disobey God and be doomed. But know this. In spite of you, God will never break his promise and he will preserve the Davidic line and the Messiah is surely to come. That's the, that's the theme. If you want to take anything from Chronicles, that's what it is, right? <clears throat> so let's dig in a little bit. Well, so how is Chronicles and Kings different? I've explained that a little bit, but how, are they, how do they differ? Kings emphasizes judgment. Chronicles emphasizes judgment, but also hope. Kings is a ton of war and conflict. The boys really like kings. When I taught the, taught the Sunday school, they liked kings. It's a lot of war and conflict. Chronicles focuses on the temple. Kings talks a lot about thrones. Chronicles talks about David's throne. Kings deals with both kingdoms. Chronicles deals with Judah, the Davidic kingdom. Kings deals with morality. Chronicles deals with morality, but much more with redemption. So the book of Chronicles ends with a tone, a message of hope. Um, I was planning on reading that. Let me... Uh, my glasses is bigger on my screen than in my <laughs> office. <laughs> um, so 2 Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of Israel, or I gotta do it here. <laughs> Alright, so the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word through them, his messenger again and again, because he had no pity, because he had pity on his people and his and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messenger, despised his words, and scoffed his prophet, at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of, ba of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary, and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried the Babylonian, he carried to Babylon, the, art, the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials, they set fire to the king's to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all of the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the years were complete pleaded in the fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Okay, I said this as a tone of message, uh, as a tone and message of hope. We're not there yet, right? So this is the desolation part. Now comes the hope. In the first year of kings of Cyrus, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. And this is what, what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth 
and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So the, the, uh, the book ends with a message of hope. And the writer is showing his readers how Judah lived and acted and who they were. He's asking the new Israel, are we going to repeat their failures or are we going to learn from them and trust in the Lord? That's his whole point in Chronicles. He lists out an entire history and says, are we going to trust in the Lord or are we going to go the same way they did? Okay? That's Chronicles. All right, Esther. The events in the book of Esther take place during the reign of Xerxes in the Persian summer capital of Susa, which is located in modern-day Iran about 500 years before Christ. So the book of Esther was during the reign of, of Xerxes, And Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces, a huge area from stretched all the way from India to Egypt and to the border of Greece up at the the top. In fact, they tried to take over Greece, but they they failed. So during the reign of Xerxes, just to give you a context of the time we're looking at, during the reign of Xerxes, Buddha lived, taught, and died. During the reign of race, uh, Xerxes, Confucius was speaking. I didn't see that the first time. I see it now. Um, uh, Confucius was speaking, um, not peaking, was speaking uh, his wise sayings and died in China. And they had war with Greece in the Battle of Marathon, which we had that race about, is right before his, his, um, his reign, right? So giving you a, a time, giving you an idea of where we are in time. At the time of Esther, about 3 million Jews lived in Persia, in, in Babylon. 50 years before his reign, 50,000 Jews went back to Jerusalem. So this is where we're at on the on the exile part as well. So the exile, some have already been able to return. We're going to go back to that when we get to Esther, uh, but um, or Ezra. We're going to get back to that when we get to Ezra. But for Esther, as Esther occurs, I think I say it right here. Esther occurs in the book of Ezra between chapters six and seven, and I'll point that out when we get there. But that's where that's where this book lands. The timeline for where this book lands. So Esther tells a story of how the Jews were saved from extermination. That's what the book is about. And how the Messianic line, why is that important? The Messianic line was preserved. We see the doctrine of providence. We see that God rules the world for the benefit of his people all throughout this book. The name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but his fingerprints are all over it. The author of the book is unknown, but it was probably Ezra. A lot of um, uh, 
Jewish history and such indicates it was probably Ezra. It could have been Nehemiah, but we don't know. The name of the book is named for its main character. The Jews called this book the role of Esther. Its placement in your Bible is the last book in the historical section. But it's not the last historical book, but it's the last book in the historical section. Okay? The name Esther in Persian means star. But she also has a Hebrew name. Anybody know what that is? Hadassah. Hadassah, yes. <laughs> which means, oh, it's there. <laughs> and, uh, um, which means uh, myrtle. Right? Um, and so uh, I couldn't tell what is Myrtle is basically, it's a evergreen shrub in the Middle East. I tried to get a picture of it, but they didn't really have any good ones. So it's, uh, I'm assuming it's a pretty flowery bush. So um, maybe similar to our crepe myrtle. I really don't know. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai, who was an official in the king's palace in Susa. Uh, she was only, she's, she's only one of two women with a book named after her. Well, who's the other? Ruth. Ruth, exactly. And so with Ruth, you have a Gentile woman married to a Jew. And with Esther, you have a Jewish woman married to a Gentile. The key word in the book is Jew. It's, this is where they're really started to be, this time period is when they were started to be called Jews. And that's because most of the exiles in Persian area were from Judah. And so they shortened it to Jews. So that's how they were known um, as Jews. And so the word Jew is throughout there. <clears throat> Jews value this book because it tells how they were preserved. Christians value this book because it shows, tells how the Messianic line was preserved. So in chapters 1 through 4, the Jews are threatened. So I'm going to go through the book real quick. Chapter 1 tells how Xerxes rejects his wife Vashti because she refused to come to him when he called her to a banquet. He wanted to, her to come and to show off her beauty, and she wasn't, she wasn't too into that. And that created a national crisis, at least for them, because she wouldn't obey the king and come to this banquet. And so the counselors and everybody get together and they say, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked, she has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes and the eunuchs that the eunuchs have taken to her. And this is Esther 1, 15 through 18. Then... Memekin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against the no all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. 
So the men feared a rebellion and a feminist uprising. Um, and so they advised the king to have nothing to do with Vashti ever again. And uh, we see that in this very foreign, very interesting culture that God is at work. He's at work in spite of the cultural norms of the day. So he gets rid of Ashti. Xerxes needs a new wife. So they start to look for a new wife. And that's where Esther and Mordecai are introduced. Esther becomes very favored by the king and becomes the queen. And so in verse 17, we have a Jewess becomes queen, but she has not disclosed that she's a Jew. God is at work placing Esther near the king before there's even a plot against the Jews. So in uh, chapter 2, verse 21 through 23, we have a very small um, account of Mordecai discovering a plot against Xerxes, uh, an assassination attempt against Xerxes, and uh, he foils that attempt. Persian records have a lot more detail about this, um, and Mordecai's name is, is, is referenced in there, so it's, it's, it's a, it happened, and Persian records go into great detail according to it. The Bible only has three verses on it, uh, but it's important, and that comes around at the very end of the book. In chapter 3, the villain is introduced. His name is Haman. Um, he's the king's favorite. He's uh, the second, the right-hand man of the king. He has great prosperity, great influence. He has basically everything you could want, but one thing troubles him. And that's found in verse three, or chapter 3, verse 2. Mordecai refuses to bow to Amon and show him honor, as was commanded to the, by the king. Everybody else bows to him, but Mordecai refuses. And Amon doesn't like that. That makes him angry. <clears throat> His pride is hurt. And so he hates Mordecai because of this. But even more, he hates all Jews because of Mordecai. That's the definition of racism. Right, And so he then determines, I am going to destroy, exterminate all the Jews. Not just the Jews in Susa, all three million Jews in the entire Persian Empire. He's going to kill them all. Haman is a greatly trusted official. He's the second in power, basically. So he's been given the task of ruling the nation in many ways. He, uh, he can write letters, give ordinances, make decrees. So when he says that's what he wants to do, he can do it. He's got the backing to do that. So he determines to do this, and then he decides, when is a good time to do this? And so he takes some lots, and he casts the lots, and by God's providence, the lots say 11 months from now, not you know, next week, right? 11 months from now. And so he makes a decree, makes the plan known, gets everybody ready and says, in 11 months, the Jews are going to die, all of them. Well, obviously, the Jews don't like this. <laughs> Their reaction is not very nice or not very kind or, or not very, they're not very happy about this. And so... Um, they appeal to Mordecai. 
And Mordecai then appeals to Esther. Now, at the time, Esther's the queen, and she's, you know, he can't just walk up and say Esther, right? He has to do it via letter. Um, she's part of the harem now, so he can't see her anymore. Um, so he sends her a letter about the plight. She didn't know anything about it. And, and he says, tell, tell the king, you know, go to, a, go to the king for us. And she responds, how? I can't go to the king. If I walk in on the king, that's a death sentence. I can't just barge in on the king. And so Mordecai uh, replies with a profound question, which is the, a key verse in the book. And that's Esther 4, 14, or 4, 12 through 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Right? We've probably all heard of that for such a time as this. So God's hand is sovereignly in control, providentially leading in all of this for such a time as this. Put her in this place as a queen to help save the Jews from eradication. So in chapter 5, we see that she goes to the king, and he doesn't execute her. And she asks him to come to her place for a banquet the next day and bring Haman. So they have the banquet. The king and Haman go there. They have a great time. At the end of the banquet, the king asks why she wanted to do this. And she says, please come tomorrow. Right? She delays. Why? Does she get cold feet? We don't know. But God is in this. He caused that delay because Haman leaves the banquet. He just got this incredible honor, right? He was able to dine with the king and queen. That's a huge honor. So he's lead, just imagine him leaving the banquet, walking home. He's on cloud nine. He's whistling a tune, having a great time, right? Until he looks over and sees Mordecai. And he says, that Mordecai, right? And his anger builds up and he gets frustrated about Mordecai. He goes home and he he rages about Mordecai to his wife and his friends, you know, because he wanted to talk about this great thing, but he, he can't get Mordecai off his mind. And his friends tell him, well, build a, um, a, uh, a gallows, there you go, build a gallows to hang him on. And tomorrow, first thing, go to the king and say, hey, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to hang Mordecai. So Haman goes to bed that night, and... Um, you know, says that's what he's going to do. Let's see. So we see that in this book, insomnia is in God's providence. Okay. The king that night couldn't sleep. <clears throat> and so he's bored. And what does he do? He has his people, you know, he can't sleep, so nobody can sleep, right? So he has his people get the, the book of their chronicles, the Persian chronicles, and has them read them to him. And so as they're reading it, he hears about the assassination attempt and how Mordecai foiled that assassination attempt. And he says, what's been done to honor Mordecai? Crickets. Nothing. 
And so he determines, I'm going to, you know, something needs to happen for Mordecai. And so the next morning, Haman arrives bright and early and goes to the king. He's about to ask the king, but the king asks him first. And the king says to, uh, to, to, to Mordecai, um, you know, what should I do for, what should the king do for the man he delights to honor? And Mordecai is like, yes, I'm about to be honored even more, right? And uh, so he says, you know, give him all his great clothes and everything, put him on a great horse and have somebody lead him around the town saying, you know, proclaiming how great he is, right? And the king says, brilliant idea. Mordecai do this, or, or Haman, do this for Mordecai. Imagine Haman's, like he just had to be just like, what? I have to now lead him throughout the city saying, Mordecai is awesome. Everybody, the king loves Mordecai. I hate Mordecai, right? And so he has to do this. Just imagine that. And so he does it because otherwise he would die, right? So he does it. He swallows his pride, but I'm sure inside his mind throughout this entire thing, he's looking to tonight's banquet. I get to go back and enjoy the banquet with the king and queen again. So he goes to the banquet after a terrible, terrible day. And at the end, towards the end of it, the king asks Esther, why have you called us to this banquet? And Esther then explains the dilemma, her problem. Says, well, please save me. King, please save me. Someone is trying to kill me and my family, my people. And the king hasn't heard about this, or he doesn't really understand where she's going with this. He says, who would dare, right? I mean, who's going to kill my, my bride? And just imagine, hey, Haman's over there eating his pudding or something, you know, and she points at him. I mean, just me? And so Haman is um, then taken and hung on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Awesome, poetic story. Um, so we see the downfall of Haman. Then Mordecai is honored. Um, Persian law couldn't be changed, so they had to pass a new law. And the new law was uh, they couldn't stop the law to kill all the Jews, so they said the Jews can do whatever they want to defend themselves. And so the Jews did. And when people came against them, they annihilated them. They killed about 75,000 people, at least, okay, that were coming against them. So the Jews defended themselves and were delivered. And then Mordecai <clears throat> um, declared a new holiday, a new, new celebration of Purim. Uh, the word pure or P-U-R there comes from lots. And so it was a, a celebration declaring or remembering God's providential rescue for the Jews. And I believe they still celebrate it today. So the book ends with um, the greatness of Mordecai. So King Xerxes, Esther 10, King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. All his acts of power and might together with the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him are they not written in the book of annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews. He held in, and held in high esteem by 
his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So we see in the book of Esther that though God's name is not in the book, God is in, at work in the book. All right, Ezra. Ezra was a scribe and a priest. His name means helper. <clears throat> From the time Ezra appears in Scripture, there is an increased interest in Scripture. He has a strong focus on Scripture and zealously points the people to God's Word. Ezra was the, uh, was, is countered with the, being the person who started synagogues because Israel was scattered and he wanted them to gather around God's word. And so they had synagogues. He wrote the book of Chronicles, like I mentioned before, compiled it from various sources as well. Most Jews believe that he wrote um, Psalm 119 also. Uh, he also wrote, it's likely he wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. Which, by the way, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally a single book. I didn't know that. So. <clears throat> he was a direct descendant of Aaron. And we'll see that in a, in a reading we'll do in a moment. The major theme of the book is God works sovereignly through responsible human agents to accomplish his redemptive purpose. So God works sovereignly through responsible human agents to accomplish his redemptive purpose. That's the, that's the theme, major theme. <clears throat> Nearly half the book is narrative. The other half is registers and lists. Part of it was written in Hebrew. Part of it was written in Aramaic, which is the language of the Persian Empire. The first few verses of Ezra, I've already mentioned this, are the same as the final verses of Chronicles. So Ezra is a continuation of Chronicles. Ezra can be divided in two parts. The first part deals with the return from captivity under Zerubbabel. And this took place between 536 B.C. and 515 B.C., so a period of 21 years. And remember, when we do B.C., we count backwards in the time. In chapter 1, we see that Cyrus gives his decree that the exiles could return to Judah. That was the work of God. In, chapters, in verses 1 through 4, we see the Spirit of God moved to make the pagan emperor make this decree. And then in verses 5 through 6, the Spirit raises up men to go back to Judah. <clears throat> and they were given 5,400 vessels from the temple. Vessels, things were looted from the previous temple. They're given those by the Persians to take back with them. So chapter 1 of this book is about the, the wave, the first wave of the return. Chapter 2 is about the list of the remaining exiles and such that are going to go. Ultimately, it's about 50,000 people. I've kind of mentioned that already. So about 50,000 people are going back. Right, so in the timeline, I've already been beyond this frame. Right, so we're going 
um, in the book of Esther, this had already occurred. So we're going back in time a little bit for Ezra, because Esther occurs in between chapters 6 and 7 of, of Ezra. So chapter 3, the first thing they do when they arrive is begin working on the temple. Uh, the first thing they build is the, the altar so they can do burnt offerings and begin worshiping. They lay the foundation in verse 10 um, and, and worship there. And just had a great experience doing that. In chapter 4, we see that their work is beginning to be opposed. So the Samaritans come, uh, and they were, you know, they were part, partly Jew. And they come, and they offer to join in the work. But Zerubbabel says no. He rejects their offer. Because even though they shared the same language and some of the same culture, they did not share the same religion. So he didn't want to have anything to do with them, which was, which was right, which was appropriate. So the work is opposed, and then we see chapter 4, or verse 4, is the summary of basically what happened in the entire chapter. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. <clears throat> so the work here is stalled. No more work happens for 15 years. All right, so... They do not, they, they get the foundation built and then everything stalls for 15 years. The whole thing wasn't supposed to come up. Oh, yeah. There. So then the work resumed. Um, Haggai and Zechariah enter the scene and the temple rebuilding starts again. Local Persian governor, so 15 years have passed, the local Persian governor comes to them and says, you know, hey, do you have permission? <laughs> what are you doing? Um, do you have permission to do this? And so um, they wrote back to the king. And um, King Darius made a search. King Darius is on the throne at the time. He made it a search and uh, found the decree of Cyrus. <clears throat> and he writes back to the governor. His name was Tatanai. Uh, and he tells them to allow the Jews to rebuild the temple and to open, not only to rebuild the temple, but to open the the treasury to them and to provide assistance. I'm sure he was regretting his uh, his decision to do that. He could have just let him do it, but now he has to pay for it. <clears throat> um, then in, in chapter 6, or we start with part 2. The return from captivity under Ezra. Right, so the first part was Zerubbabel. The second part Ezra enters the scene. So Ezra is just recounting history in the first few uh, chapters. Now Ezra is entering the scene. <clears throat> chapters, the, the time period between chapter 6 and 7 is about 57 years. Right? So um, uh, that is the time, that 57-year period is the time when Esther occurred. Okay? The Jews were now favored. Remember Mordecai and all this kind of stuff. Jews are now favored in Persia. And the people in Jerusalem have backslidden. The events in the rest of the book, chapters 7 through 10, take place in a single year. All right, so one year. And that's the 458, 457 B.C. So Ezra goes to the king, and he seeks permission 
And we're going to read this. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abushi, Abushua, <laughs> son of Phineas, son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the chief priest. Why did he do that whole line? So you could say he was the son of Aaron, right? Um, <clears throat> this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. So you can do the time, see how long it took, about four months. For the gracious hand of God was on him. I underlined this because I like this passage. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching his decrees and laws in Israel. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra, the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord of Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, priest and teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. <clears throat> Ezra 7.13 Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to God, to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem, with this money, be sure to buy bulls and rams, male lambs, and together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Let me pause for a second. We see here two things I want to point out. The law of, of God was um, in your hand, so which is in your hand. So he is walking around with God's word. And obviously the king knows about the religion. You know, he's talking about these offerings and things, um, using proper words and proper offerings. So Ezra has educated this king somewhat on their religion. Now, he was not, a, not he didn't believe, but um, just shows, shows he was working in, in, in the king's heart. Verse 18, you and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to, to the God of Israel all the articles entrusted for your worship, for, for worship, for, to you for worship in the temple of your God and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now, I, 
King Artaxerxes ordered all the treasuries of trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law of God of heaven, may ask of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty of any on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or any other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to minister judges justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. That's quite the permission, right? I mean, think about it. <clears throat> Artaxerxes gave him authority to go, gave him a ton of gold, let him go and, and get offerings. <clears throat> he allowed him I mean, just an incredible amount of, of resources here. He can go and become the, uh, he's the governor, he can create um, magistrates and judges. The priests and the people who work in the temple, the church workers, no tax, right? Um, just an incredible uh, response from Artaxerxes. So he responds in, in, uh, in verses 27 to 28. Ezra responds with a great psalm of praise and worship. <clears throat> and then chapter 8 lists the people who went. And what's kind of what's significant here is the king offered to send a um, an escort with them, soldiers to protect them on their way, because this is a small group going with a ton of riches. And Ezra says, "No, the Lord our God will provide our escort." I mean, all right, man of faith, right there. And so he prays, fasted, and prayed for their protection. <clears throat> they went. I mean, they're traveling. I mean, it takes months to get there, and it's through desert land. It's, it, there are marauders and bandits all over the place. And they, they arrived with no issues. So God was their protector. <clears throat> Once they get there, the work begins. And... Um, <clears throat> The guy who did this uh, outline likes the peas. Um, this program, I think, is more administration, would be the way I would say it. <clears throat> so once they arrive, um, they count everything. So they, they left, they had an accounting, and when they get there, they do an accounting, and nothing's missing. Right. So uh, everything's good, the books are, are clear. They also delivered this awesome letter um, from Artaxerxes, his orders to the royal satraps and governors of the area uh, that they have to give assistance to him. 
Chapter 9, a problem arises. There's always a problem. The Israelite leaders tell Ezra that the people have taken on foreign wives, even the priests and Levites. They began intermarrying again. Ezra reacted with anguish and prayer. He confesses the sin of the nation. He owns up to the guilt of the people. In chapter 10, the people respond with anguish. And in verse 9 through 11, Ezra tells them to separate themselves from the heathen. He investigates those who intermarried and makes a list of them. Uh, It's recorded. And they have to put away their foreign wives and make trespass offerings. So in the book of Ezra, we see the beginning of Reformation. The stage is being set for the coming of Christ. Now we get to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, this book closes Old Testament history. So this is the last Old Testament book as far as the historical record goes. It begins 12 and a half years after the book of Ezra. We don't know what happened in the 12 and a half year time period between the end of the book of Ezra and the end of, or the beginning of Nehemiah. We don't know what happened to the Jews, but we do know that during that time period, the governor of Samaria successfully rebelled against Persia. This was the beginning of the downfall of of the Persian Empire. And their hold over this region was tenuous. So as a result, Judah had no martial or material or military support from the kingdom. So Samaria was able to oppose Judah and their efforts to rebuild. Also during this time, the priests and the people began backsliding and intermarrying again. Nehemiah was born in, or his name means uh, comfort from Jehovah. He was born in Babylon. He became cupbearer to King Artaxerxes at a very young age. Uh, He had personal contact with the king, influence with the king. This was a very honored position. It's not just, you know, you get to die by eating poison food. It was a very trusted and and, uh, meaningful position. Nehemiah hears about the destruction of the walls of Judah and the desolation of Judah. So he is given royal authority. Uh, He's appointed governor and given royal authority to go to Judah and rebuild the walls. Um, The story of Nehemiah is about how, in spite of immense opposition, the Jews were able to rebuild the wall in 52 days. The major theme is similar to the major theme in Ezra. God works sovereignly through responsible human agents to accomplish his redemptive purpose. The book tells how God favors his people and how they put down roots in Judah. We also see both prayer and action working together. Nehemiah is a man who prays and acts. I'm sure you've seen there's a lot of leadership books around Nehemiah as well. I don't have time to go into any of that. Again, bird's eye view survey. Chapter 1. The book starts off with a broken heart. Nehemiah goes to God in prayer. What broke his heart? He heard a report 
about the condition of the walls and the gate of Jerusalem. And his heart breaks over his city, his beloved city he's never been to. The king notices his sadness and asks what is wrong and asks for his request in verse 4. Nehemiah prays and then acts. So Nehemiah 2, five through, or two 1 through 5a. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. You don't go in the king's presence sad. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. <clears throat> I underlined that part because we have a lesson of prayer on, uh, in here. A lot of different ways, methods, and types of prayer. Right? We have in, in worship, we have very formal prayer. In your prayer life at home, you might do the acts of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Right? That's how we teach our kids to pray. That's how I taught the Sunday school boys to pray. He's not doing that here. He doesn't have time to get down on his knees and do adoration, confession, thanks for supplication, right? He doesn't have time to do that. What is he doing here? He's doing an immediate instant help, a plea for help. Um, God welcomes and encourages frequent and continued dialogue and prayer. Chapter 2, 1 through 20, Nehemiah inspects the wall. And he's immediately opposed. But he stands up to the scorn of the Horonites, Ammonites, and the Arabs. They're sitting there casting uh, insults at them. Chapter 3, he built, the builders uh, do the work and such. Some of them are slacking off. Some of them are working hard. The scorn turns to anger and violence. Nehemiah responds with prayer and gets on with the work. Um, almost done. Nehemiah 4, 7 through 18. When Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and I underlined him because he's going to come in later. The Ammonites, the man of Ashdod, heard about the repairs. Let's see. I don't know how time to read all this. Um, read this on your own, but a couple points to, to look at are um, when, when they stirred up trouble against them, we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. The other is, um, uh, we heard a plot from, uh, from them, and, God, and he says there's a plot against them, and he tells them, remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers. So the point here is, if it comes to a fight, remember the Lord and fight. Okay? <clears throat> um... Chapter 5, we have internal issues. If the devil can't cause them to stop by external issues, he's going to create some internal ones. I'm not going to say what they are because I don't have time, but there was internal problems. Nehemiah takes care of them. 
Then in chapter 6, we see his determination, the termination of Nehemiah. Uh, the opposition plots to kill him, and he rebuffs them. They launch a slanderous propaganda campaign against him, and, he rebukes, the, and he, he rebukes the lies directly. His own people advise Nehemiah to hide from the plots, and he says, no, I'm not going to hide. How, why would I do that? In chapter 6, verse 15, the wall is complete. It's finished. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul, 52 days they completed it. When the enemies heard about this, the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. When God's people work, it is seen to be God's work. Chapter 7, we see a register of the people and their gifts of the work. Chapter 8, Ezra reappears to read the law. One of the verses, key verses there, this is a verse that, that is, is basically what preachers, pastors use. <clears throat> this is what they do. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. That's what pastors do when they preach a sermon. So he was reading the law, but he was also preaching sermons on the law, making sure they understood it. Israel confesses their sin. I don't have time to go into that. Um, and then they covenant with God to obey him. He lists out a bunch of uh, the people who were there in the area. They dedicate the wall in chapter 12. And then Nehemiah goes away for a short time. Um, Nehemiah goes away for a short time. I can't do this. Okay. We don't know why he went away. Uh, May, he went around, went away for about 18 months or so, we think. He returns and discovers that Tobiah, the guy who I underlined before, one of the leading opposition people, an Ammonite official, has a room in the temple. Nehemiah is irate. And um, he goes to the room and he evicts everything. He tosses them out, all his furniture and everything. He also learns that the Levites are not being supported by the tithe. And so he fixes that. He also learns that um, the people were violating the Sabbath day. And so he corrects them, rebukes them. But really what got under his skin was he found out that people were starting to, to intermarry again. And so he, he beats them up. I mean, he must have been a pretty solid dude. He beats them up, pulls out their hair, and forces them to uh, make an oath in God's name to never intermarry again. So this is where the Old Testament history ends. Judah is intact. The temple is rebuilt. The city and its wall is rebuilt. The people are free from intermarrying after he, he beat them up. Um, the surrounding area is occupied. There is no idolatry. The people... Um, who read the script, people are is filled with people who are reading the scriptures and worshiping the Lord in the temples and synagogue. And they have the prophecies of Malachi ringing in their ears. So at the end of this book, the stage is set for the Messiah. All right, let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace, your goodness all that you do for us. We pray, God, that you help us as we go to worship. Be with Pastor Rick as he delivers the sermon. Help us to 
hear your words, help them to deliver your truth. Prick our consciences and help us to honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.